from the twisted realm of science and the darkest pits of reason comes chilling tales of godlessness. Bear witness to the unfathomable terror that is... The Good Atheist. Welcome to The Good Atheist Podcast. My name is Jacob Fortan. Today my special guest, this is now our third attempt at the kick, you know, kick of the can. I think it's going to be a good show. Thanks for <laughs> joining me, Catherine. Thanks. Catherine Dunphy, everybody. Let's give her a hand of applause because there's no audience, but let's just do that anyways. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining me. Yes, we unfortunately had lots of technical difficulties uh, in trying to make this show, but we're going to, she saved my bacon. She's literally recording this show for me, <laughs> and if only I could fire myself, but unfortunately, uh, being the only employee here at Jayco is a nightmare. You don't know... You don't know half the story of how awful it can be with this guy. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Thanks for being patient with me, Catherine. I really appreciate it. No problem. No problem. It's, it's good to be here, and I am glad that I'm able to uh, save the show for you. Woohoo. I know. I know. Really, it's just it's a miracle. So first off, I wanted to kind of introduce everybody on the, you know, like the, my limited little range about all the things that you're doing because I, I feel like it, in terms of the media and information, the videos that are out there, there is a serious, uh, you know, lack of it, if, 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 if I'm being you know, fair. I wish there was more. So I was like, well, I, can, I think I can interview this person and we can find out more about her mm-hmm. because your story is intriguing to me. So let us begin first with the, well, we're going to start right at the beginning because we've did this a few times now and, you know, I'm kind of bored. So we're going to go really right back to the beginning and you're going to tell me about your childhood as a very <laughs> religious person. And then we're going to we're going to mark all the way down to when you stop believing because by by then it'll be clear about what it is that you do. Okay. All right. Well, this is kind of this feels more like a, a therapy session than an interview at this point. Uh- <laughs> well, you were a Roman Catholic, so uh, it is a therapy session. That's some abusive ass shit on, on so many levels. So, welcome to the virtual couch with Jacob Fortin. Okay. Thank you, Jacob. Okay, so let's start with uh, um, my indoctrination um, into Roman Catholicism as a child. I was raised as a Roman Catholic in a very Catholic household, um, and I've already said this, but I'm going to say it again. It's more akin. It was more akin to a, a medieval household than a household in the 1980s and 1990s. Um, in that we, um, you know, aside from attending church every single week. Um, we prayed the rosary on our knees. Um, we were encouraged to have a prayer life as children, including for me, I did lots of novenas to like the Virgin Mary and, uh, St. Teresa of Lixir and, you know, lots of, uh, uh, holy men and women. Um, and we were really encouraged to, ha- I in particular was really encouraged to, to foster that because I was the religious child. Lots of, lots of Roman Catholics have historically have had these, you know, holy religious children that they, they rear to have a vocation in religious life. I was that child for my family. So, um, so you were, you were the child that was destined for nunnery. Yeah. And, and the funny, the funny kind of thing about it is, well, it's not, it's not really funny, but it is in some ways. <laughs> funny. That, well, we call that Hilero tragic where yeah, I come from. That, that, yeah. That's pr- pretty accurate is that, um, even though my mom helped to foster this vocation in me, she didn't really want me to become a nun because um, I was really sick as a child and she thought that a life um, in the convent would be too hard on me. But she, you know, I mean, 
I had a reputation in this one particular um, uh, convent because uh, even now, if I go back there, they're gonna they're gonna tell you tell me the same story that happened when I was three year, year, years old, which was you know my mom was visiting um, sister so and so at the mother house, and I knocked over the mother superior's favorite plant, and I tried to hide it by putting it under a rug and stamping on it. So I, I can never outlive. <laughs> <laughs> that that story from my childhood. So so there was wow. this intimate. That's a rep. Yeah, I know. I have a bad rep for the, with this particular order. But still, like this was the this was the order that I approached when I was eighteen. Um, uh, and I thought, you know, I I made I have a vocation. I feel called, and it was no wonder because I was constantly cultivating a vocation. I was constantly praying and constantly, you know, building my relationship with Jesus and feeling guilty for the role that I played with my sinfulness and His crucifixion. Like, oh, it was hysterical and horrible and so tragic. This, the story was always upsetting you in various forms. Yeah, right? yeah. Well, I mean, I was, you know, um, just felt bad that you know I had to be a sinner and poor Jesus on the cross and yada, yada, yada. So um, I, uh, you know, when I was 18 and found myself thinking about becoming a nun, it was because I, it, I didn't know anything else. I really didn't. Um, and my conversation, um, you know, is it's very vivid in my mind. I remember the sandwich that I ordered and how I ate the meal while we had this conversation. And she asked me all these questions about why I wanted to enter uh, religious life. And um, at the end of that conversation, she said, you know, I think you should, you've, you've been, a, you know, you've been a, uh, accepted at university. I think you should go and I think you should, you know, study some theology. And then after you have had time to, to, to assess that, then come back. Well, I didn't come back, but I got really excited about theology when, when I went off to university. And I ended up um, doing an advanced major because they didn't have an honors program. Uh, which meant I wrote a thesis, which I really um, enjoyed. Um, what was your thesis about? My thesis was on liberation theology, and I had an opportunity to interview these women who were doing um, um, a, um, this program in social development from you know different corners of the world um, that were all Catholics, but from different uh, cultural backgrounds. And I ended up talking to them about their experience of of, uh, of Roman Catholicism within their culture, and so so just how these individuals and how social justice and liberation theology is co-creative. And that's kind of like a theology term that gets thrown around. Right. Despite the fact that it's actually a, a, a sort of oxymoron yeah. in itself. Liberation yeah. and theology have nothing to do with one another. Well, and also the, the other thing that's kind of interesting about liberation theology is that it's deconstructionist. It, it emerged out of uh, Marxism. Right, you know, and it emerged out of the cry for the poor, which is why uh, you know John Paul II and uh, you know um, um, his bulldog, the uh, former Pope Ratzinger, A.K.A. Benedict, um, hated liberation theology, and they did everything they could to squash it, even though it was you know pro people. I mean, you have like a you have a one of their priests getting shot in the head in the middle of saying mass, and they're not you know, pro the movement, that would be Oscar Romero, right? So, so you have, like, it is, it's really interesting, you know, that I got kind of wrapped up in that type of context of this type of theology that's about raising people up and uh, building up social movements. So that's, that's how I got more engaged. And as part of that, that, that pushed me forward to do my, what at the time I wanted to do my MDiv MA. 
um, and work in these kind of environments where I'm doing this social justice work and helping to be co-creative um, while still ministering to people and then doing research on top because the goal was that at some point I'd get my PhD and I would, you know, I could be at this lofty level of liberation theologians and that, you know, the church would have a problem with me, but I was okay with that. What was the period of time? So you were in school, like the program was what, three years, four years? My undergraduate was four years. Four years. And then my my uh, master's program was three. But I ran into, you know, a problem in my master's degree. And that kind of emerged, you know, slowly over time for, for two reasons. Okay, The, the, the ever-retreating God syndrome problem? Um, yeah, but I think that that wasn't what pushed me. What really pushed me was the fact that I'm a woman and I was at in a Catholic seminary, right? And I right. even, and it, I could not avoid the fact that I was a woman. And there's no opportunity for women to be ordained in the Catholic Church unless you count like women priest, which basically means you get excommunicated. And hey, sign me up for that one. Um, but I don't want to be a priest because I don't believe in any of this ethereal transcendent stuff. It, it, to me, it's... Um, it's you mean the Lord of the Rings stuff? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so... Yeah. You, you went to school and you became like an expert pretty much in like Lord of the Rings. I, yeah, 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 sort of. Yeah, yeah. If except you, for boring. Yeah, Lord except, of the boring. Lord of the hypostatic union. Um, <laughs> uh, so anyway, so it was the, 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 my education helped me to deconstruct my faith. And, 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 and I don't think that most people think about that happening when they enter seminary. Um, and I don't think that... Seminaries necessarily think that that's what's happening, but the reality is is that it's a discipline, you know, in a spectrum of academia, right? So it has to adhere to um, if it's going to be um, reasonable, if it's if it's going to be accredited, you know, then it has to adhere to a certain standard, right? And that standard pushes the theological or the belief envelope and what you believe and how you believe, which is why you'll hear theologians like someone like Karen Armstrong say, you know, um, uh, something along the lines of, you know, God is the energy and the creative force by which the universe understands itself. And that is what I call God. You know, they'll say something very ethereal and poetic that sounds really moving and beautiful. Uh, Daniel Dennett calls these types of things deepities. And I, I agree with him. You know, um, it, it says, sounds wonderful, but at the it really has no value or meaning because it is it's so subjective and internalized that it, you're really just talking about how something makes you feel. Yeah, well, it sounds beautiful until you say, well, God is a gamma ray on its way to annihilate all life on Earth. We're just not aware of it yet because it travels at the speed of light. Right. Yay, that's ethereal. Yeah, isn't it beautiful? But I mean, like... So beautiful. And then you have, like, theologians trying to utilize um, other disciplines. Like, there was this book by this, um, I think he's Irish, McMurchin is the author, this book that was written in the 90s called uh, Quantum Theology. And oh, boy. He, yeah, and he's trying, like, oh, Deepak Chopra loves this book, by the way. Yeah, no kidding. Um, and he's trying to take the ideas out of quantum physics and, and intermingle them with, Theology, and I mean, and very clearly he says, "Well, it's not the same as, but it's inspirational," you know. And and I think, well, okay, well then, what's the point? Yeah, and what the hell is the point? Yeah, so that's where I ended up finding myself. Well, what is the point, right? Um, 
Uh, and part of that was when I went off to do my field placement for my degree. I went off and I, here I was, I'm doing active ministry. I had worked previously for the church. Um, I took a year off between my undergrad and my master's where I worked for an archdiocese and that was an eye-opening experience, let me tell you. Um, but in the work that I did... More on that later. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And the work that I did uh, uh, during this field placement, there I ran into two problems. One, I'm a woman, and I'm in my 20s at the time. And I'm going to tell you, nobody wants to take <laughs> spiritual advice from a woman in their 20s. They just don't, right? Um, and that's partially because of the paternalistic patriarchy that is Catholicism and Christianity. Um, and it's part because it's um, a little bit of, in our culture. And so there was that issue. There was definitely that issue. But then there was also the insanity that I was witness to where, you know, I'm working with these people that are basically in my age group, you know, and they're just, they're, they're, they're so contorted by their Catholicism. Like they have no religious freedom as I understood it at that time, where that God, w I was a theologian, right? So I thought that God was, you know, like Karen Armstrong this beautiful thing that ebbed and flowed and that grew and, you know, related to me. And that wasn't this judgmental thing because I had given up the idea of hell when I took my first philosophy class um, and thought that it was unreasonable. <laughs> yeah, of course. Like the, that basic question I always ask people is, how long do you think is a reasonable time to punish Hitler in hell? Yeah, exactly. You know? What sounds like a reasonable number because you'll yeah. find that eternity, it will always be a lot more than the number you think is reasonable. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. So, so yeah, so it, it, it was eye-opening for me and incredibly frustrating. And I, was, I realized that I'm trying to articulate and share these ideas about God. I'm hitting this brick wall with these people. They're, they're complaining that I'm gutting. <laughs> you know, the individuals will say, you know, this interpretation that you're trying to sell me about God just doesn't jive with me. And then I sat, it forced me to sit and look at myself and go, well, what am I, is that I'm doing? And, and I said this to you at one of the other times that we were discussing this. That it was like, <laughs> one of the many great shows that you'll never listen to, people. Yeah. Uh, was that God was like this Lego set for me that I, you know, busily built up into this beautiful thing and admired and then went, oh, wait, that doesn't work. And I deconstructed that and then built it up again and, and was happy with it and then deconstructed it again and then built it up again. And eventually I realized, oh, I am the architect. It took me a long time. But once I realized it, I was like, well, then why am I doing this if I'm recreating this? And so that was the, that was the beginning of the end for me. And it was a matter of after I finished my field placement, I was like, I need a break. And I was really kind of lucky that I had to take a break because I had to have, go off and have surgery. So I went off and had surgery, had my recovery time, went, I don't believe any of this. I can't believe any of this. What am I going to do? Um, and then went back um, after about a year and a half <laughs> And uh, of, of going, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And went, I have to finish. I have to do something. So I went back to my um, the registrar at my school, and I had kind of a, a somewhat um, uh, exposing conversation with her, and said, you know, I'm back, but I don't want to be. <laughs> and I'm here because I want to finish this so that I don't have a gaping hole in my resume. You know, even though I don't have a lot of stock in the degree, at least I can put it on my wallet and it'll look pretty. And it'll be in Latin, so nobody will know what it says. 
<laughs> and it will look super fancy. It will because uh, it's got like yeah. it's got like three you know golden you know um, uh, certificate emblems on it. It's in official Latin. It's it's you know it's, it's beautiful. Um, I think I, I think I like this story. It's a sort of you were a caterpillar, a, a, you know, a Catholic caterpillar, uh, <laughs> and then basically after surgery or this chrysalis, you come out yeah. an atheist butterfly. I do, yeah, uh, ready yeah. to fly. I yeah. mean, you know, that's the that's the easiest way I could just sum it all up. I wish it was that. I wish it was that easy. So, in or what I did was like I said to her, listen, I can't finish the MDiv MA because I, I have at least, uh, a, you know. I have at least two semesters left to finish that. I had three biblical courses that I needed to finish. That's a long time. That's like putting in a. That's like putting in a resident, like saying yeah. you're you're quitting a job a, like a year in advance. A it's year horrible. in advance. Yeah, and it felt oh. like torture for me. So she oh, said. Gosh. So I said to her, "What do I do? Because I really I don't think I believe this anymore." And she said, "Well, you, you know, why you're here, you could just walk away." And, and I told her, "I don't feel like I can do that. I invested too much time and money. I want the degree. I want a degree." And she said, well, listen, you could take one, uh, I, the one course that I didn't do because I couldn't find a prof originally that I thought would jive with me was um, an Old Testament course. And so I, had, I ended up taking this Old Testament course from this particular prof that I wasn't too enthused about taking it from. And I, it was the most annoying, torturous, frustrating experience um, of, you know, I, almost of my life because every day I left that classroom I'd be so irritated because she purposely avoided looking at other ancient Near Eastern texts like uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh or Numa Elish anything any of the Mesopotamian Akkadian stuff because because and I asked the question like the first or second class she said because it was troubling to people's faith and I'm just like this is utter BS Oh You're, my God! You can't. You can't even have. I, I was trying to have a conversation with this one religious scholar where I was explaining even my own writing of Bible stories. I was discovering that the the Samaritans mm -hmm. had a bigger claim to Judaism mm -hmm. than the Jews who came back from their Assyrian exile. And I'm like, uh, there's only really two hundred thousand Jews. On yes. Earth real ones. And then all of a sudden, you're just like, you can't say that shit. And I'm like, well, this is some pagan ass crap here that I'm reading. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, the thing that's, I think, interesting about the Torah of the Old Testament is that, you know, it's, um, you can't, like, if you read it and you don't know anything about the historical context, it's very confusing. But once you start understanding, you know, the, the, the exiles and what was going on and that these, um, these Jews that were captured were being enculturated into these other faiths and that the, the writing of these books was kind of a response from the rabbinical tradition against this paganization of Jews. Like when you realize that that's what's going on, then you understand why it's such a violent, bloody book, why there's so much condemnation towards other faiths. Well, I, I, I was always curious more of like, why is Baal so attractive? And then I realized, oh, he's the, he's the god of rain. Yeah. Well, why, would, why would that be fucking popular there? Well, exactly, exactly. And then you look at something like the, the Noah story, which, you know, just got uh, the, that big splashy movie uh, that Christians were all upset about. Um, and and you, you go, wow, well, there are other ancient Near Eastern traditions and that, that this story probably emerged from. And why would, why would they be so interested in floods? Oh, my goodness, they're between the Tigris and the Euphrates. And if the banks overflowed, it would be a cataclysmic disaster. Oh, oh it's not, it's 
it's not just it's not just them. I mean, every ancient civilization yeah. is near river system. Yes. I, I, I there's a I, you've never seen this, but I have a series of postcards that I've been developing with Bible stories, and the one that I've chosen for Genesis, which I'm going to release once the book is out, mm -hmm. is I mentioned which of the you know it's like a trivia thing, and there's mm -hmm. three people, and the first and it says which of the following did not inspire this story of Noah's Ark. And there's uh, Upnapishtim and uh, Utra, no, uh, Atrahasis. Mm -hmm. And then the other one is this Chinese one. Mm -hmm. um, I'm I don't remember the name because I'm terrible with Chinese names. But the answer is obviously the third one. But here's the thing about that one mm -hmm. is that in the Chinese flood story, when the main guy hears that there's going to be a flood, he builds a canal and saves everyone. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's what you're supposed to do. Not build a fucking boat to save your own ass. Yeah. Try yeah. to save everybody else. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like it's it's a really um um uh, you know, the, the you really you look at these stories and you realize the strife and the con, you know, the conflicts and and you know, it's it's the ultimate read between the li lines uh, <laughs> book, right? Yeah, no so, no kidding. Yeah. And it's funny too because in in one of our many conversations, we were talking about how a lot of times let's say you take the poetry of the King James Bible. Mm -hmm. And you're just sort of like, well, there's some beautiful things that are said in it. But what the context of what is being said is terrible. Yeah. And that's how you mask it. You mask an awful story by using beautiful language. Yeah, I mean, even if you look at, you know, uh, the story of Jesus and his crucifixion, I mean, like, you can't get any worse than this. I mean, let's talk about public execution. First, public torture and then execution, right? And, and, and it supposedly has a happy ending. Right. Right, but and, and let's but let's also deal with the fact that okay, sure, let's even give Jesus' crucifixion one of how many other people? Big deal yeah. happened to a lot of other people. We we don't talk about Brian and his crucifixion. Yeah. Well, maybe we do. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, it it is it, you know one thing. Uh, I'm I'm gonna I'll tell you this little story about one of my uh, my first theology class, which was really mind you know, blowing experience, even though the text for this course was Richard McBrien's Catholicism, which is this really, you know, great book about Catholicism, what Catholics believe, magisterium, that sort of stuff. Um, anyway, my prof was, uh, he, he stumped us in, in class. Um, he, he asked this question. He said, um, how do we know that the resurrection story is true? And everybody in the class was just kind of like, oh. <laughs> right? And he got kind of frustrated with us because, because of their response because of their response you know and I think to myself now well you know at the time it seemed kind of like oh thank god someone had an answer right <laughs> but now I look at that and go uh okay well people have responses to things all all the time they think they see Jesus and toast and then they put it on the mantle and and pray that it doesn't go moldy right <laughs> so yeah but the answer of bunch of dumb apes had hallucinations is not an answer. Yeah, yeah, and I don't even know, like, the, the reality is, is that you, you, you're going to have, like, I'm not a biblical scholar. Part of me wishes that I kind of was, but I just couldn't stick it out and do that. But if you look at someone like um, um, Bart Ehrman, who's got, you know, tremendous books, um, uh, like a whole, you know, basically a series of everything you would want to know about Jesus and the New Testament, um, you know, and he writes it in such a friendly way for, you know, the average reader. Um, and I just think, um, 
he's he's giving people the the information that's in the Bible that you only really glean from it when you read it in its original, say, uh, Greek or Hebrew, um, because that because the word is translated right so many different times that the meaning can is slightly altered. Um, like, oh, so the ultimate game of telephone. Yeah, yeah. Like, like for example, let's go back to the Noah story. Um, there's some, you know, question about whether it was the Red Sea or the Reed Sea, and the Red Sea is definitely this big, huge, you know, body of water. Where the Reed Sea is kind of like a trickle, <laughs> right? Right. So, uh, not Moses. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah Moses. Yeah, Moses. Yeah, sorry, Moses, yeah, not sure. Noah. Um, so, uh, sorry, uh, I screwed up the patriarchs there. Um, uh, We're forgiven. I'm forgiven, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you, you, you can put that book away. I was just teasing you last time because, you know, I, because I've been writing Bible stories, I've been having to collect some, some Bibles, and I'm like, oh, I found some beautiful ones. I didn't come in being forced mm -hmm. into it like you. But here's what I will kind of like give you. Um, maybe we can twist the narrative. I have a segment on my show I like to say it's called Polish That Turd. So let me polish the turd that is the your diploma and just say that and just say that you know what you have equipped yourself in like no one can ever claim that you didn't you know do your homework no one can ever claim that your uh you know your attempt was ever fake or whatever and all that time that you were suffering and being like ah all those little bits that anger me well that's the fuel in the fire that helps write books and you know keeps you keeps that shit alive for the next 30 years because you're going to be fighting these assholes until you die that's well, the truth i mean i like i i i tried to have a really um um kind of humble um position. Maybe it's because I'm Canadian and maybe it's because I remember what it was like to be a believer and know how invested I was in those beliefs and how much meaning they had for me and how they blocked out the sun of reality, right? They limited my, the, the, my ability to see the world as it truly was. And yes, I was complicit in that delusion um, and I take responsibility for it, but I also have to acknowledge that, you know, um, um, the limits were built in from childhood, right? Um, so, you know, I, I, I don't, I feel a sense of, I feel a sense of, why can't we all get along? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, so long as you take Yes, it, that it, is Canadian. It's that very is so Canadian. It is. Freaking Canadian of you, because here's the thing, <laughs> you, there's so many reasons for you to be outraged. I want you to embrace all of them, because, you know, we, we, one of our conversations we had was about a, a priest that was in, uh, you know, like the, the, the bishop of your parish or whatever, yeah, who was complicit uh, in, yeah. in, you know, uh, harboring child molesters, and yeah. we can't get along with that. That's oh, not, no, there's no, no getting I, along. I, don't, I mean, there's definitely lines that, you know, that don't get crossed, that I, I have a, a lot of criticism for the church in relationship to how it deals, dealt with uh, sexual abuse scandals, but also the reality, in my opinion, from what I have seen, is that the church creates these predators, okay, and that might be controversial, and people might not like that, and I might have hurt the Pope's feelings right now, and Jesus may be crying, but uh, the reality the, the, is... The Pope washes his tears with money. I think he's fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the reality is, is that in some way the church is completely complicit in that. It has enabled this culture to thrive. If we think that this is something that just erupted in the 1970s and only grew because of uh, an increased amount of knowledge and the ability for victims to be able to speak out, then we are deluding ourselves. This is part and parcel of the culture of the church that probably goes back to the, when they decided that everybody had to be celibate. 
right? I, actually, no, even before then, I think I was reading some article that as early as the first or maybe second century, uh, there were talks that uh, it was a serious problem within the uh, right. within the church because I think that ultimately here's here's the there's the, the problem is compounded not only because it's a boys club yeah and uh, you know even if even in, in the early days where you it necessarily wasn't say that you weren't banned it's mm-hmm. still not saying like hey go out and get ten girlfriends you know what I mean like the, yeah. this is still a religion that basically looks at women and says these are evil. Yeah, well, let's the, then let's re- rewind and go back to Genesis, right? And where you have the unfortunate story of Adam and Eve, um, and you have Eve being um, deemed a corrupter of men, right? And then women, you know, uh, having to bear the shame and the burden of being the daughters of Eve, right? And then in Catholicism in particular, you have this dichotomy between this evil Eve who is overtly sexualized and this Virgin Mary, who is the pinnacle of perfection. Um, personally, I don't like Mary um, because it's, I think she's a conspirator, and uh, she's—it's a lie. There's no way that a woman gives birth by, you know, as a virgin. Like it's just a—it's a bunch of hogwash. Um, and the fact that the church makes her into their pinup girl is grotesque, in my opinion. Um, and it's like a, it's an, a feminine ideal that doesn't exist. But then you have that you have those ideals and that dichotomy all throughout our culture. But Mary is kind of, in my opinion, the her and Eve are the originators of these of these um, of, the, of, of these values that women are either all, all good or all evil, right? Um, so yeah, so th- there's a lot that goes on. I want to just talk a, a little bit because we mentioned I mentioned it before when we talked about this situation with sexual abuse in my former diocese. And the situation was that the bishop of the diocese had made comments, controversial comments, in um, the local newspaper about a sexual abuse scandal that had erupted in another diocese that was nearby um, and said that the victims of these predatory priests um, were somehow complicit in their abuse because they were adolescents and that maybe they had seduced the priest, right? Right, with their sexy little under prepubescent yeah. asses. Yeah, and then also shaking about. Right. Why, why did they keep going back? Why did they continue to be altar servers? Why did this happen? Why did that happen? So, it, like the you know the type of victim blaming that generally you know goes on, um, and uh, people were really upset with that. And he didn't have a really good reputation after that. Um, something that happened, and this is in, actually in the book that I'm writing right now about the history of the of the founding of the clergy project, and also about my history um, as a former. The book is called. Uh, the, the working book. title is working Apostle title. to Apostate. Apostle um, to Apostate. Yeah. Though, you know, check in later. Yes, check in later. Yeah. Check in later. So, well, you know, when it's done and stuff, we can have a follow up. Sure. Sure. And definitely, you know. Yeah. Have with, with whatever title it'll be called. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure that's going to be the title. I'm not sure what the tag will be, but that's going to be the, the the headline. And this one focuses primarily on this issue, right? Is that, is that yeah, it, it talks about the issue of losing your faith um, and uh, found the founding of the clergy project and why it need why it was founded and what it did and what it was like that first you know little while with us first 52 people that were there. Um, anyway. The original gang. The original gangs, yeah. 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 We should give you a name, like, you know, not the 52, because that's not clever, but some kind of cool name. You know, yeah. build build the really the, the secular legend. Yeah, exactly. Old. We'll have to come up with our own book and, and, and myths to go with it. So, yeah. um, uh, what was I saying? So, 
in the in the book, I talk about this one experience. Of, of course, being really raised in a religious home, my mom would send me to youth camp, right? That was run by the diocese in the summer. A very, very common story with most uh, early religious experience. Youth camps or, or yeah. campgrounds and that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So this was, so I, just, I went off to this youth camp about a month or two after the bishop had issued his really nasty statements. And so we were there and it was, you know, everybody was talking about it because it was, it was news, right? That the bishop would say stuff like this. So, so we're there and then on, like in the middle of the week, who shows up at this camp but the bishop, okay? So the bishop. The bishop. The bishop. <laughs> he shows up. And um, he's, he's, of course, we uh, have to sit and listen to him because he's the bishop. So he gets up to talk. And one of the girls, I don't know where she got uh, the, uh, the wherewithal, but she stood up and she asked him. She just she put her hand up and said, I have a question. And he, I guess he was like, oh, okay, let's, let's hear what you have to say here. And <laughs> she said, why did you issue that statement about those victims of, the, of those priests in this diocese. That, do you think that was right? Like, that wasn't right. And he was really outraged. Like, he was teed off. He became, like, you know, the ugliest shade of puce. You know, he was, he was, he had the little white bits by the corners of his mouth. He was spitting and angry and telling her how Angrily dare foaming she... at the mouth like yes. a maniac. Pretty much. That's yeah. the visual that I have in my head. Like um, and he just kept, he then started to condemn her and say that she didn't understand and how dare she question her, hit him because she, he's the bishop and blah, 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 blah. So we got up and walked wow. out on him. <laughs> we, all us little girls, you know, got up and walked out on the Let bishop. Let me tell you, those are some ovaries, ladies. That Radio is ovaries. right. Those are some ovaries. And he just didn't know what to do. And the adults that were there didn't know what to do either. They were all like, <gasps> What's going on? But we refused to go back in until he left. So it was a pretty empowering moment for me. And it was, you know, it was the first time that I stood up to church authority. It and realized that not only are they human, but they're pathetic uh, humans, yeah. many of them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you're just kind of like, oh, you petty little yeah. man in your boys club that would do anything to protect your pedophile friends. Yeah, kind of. That's that's <laughs> that's kind of it. The unfortunate thing, or maybe like you can't make stuff like this up. Okay, so then this guy retired, and then uh, uh, his replacement came in to you know patch things up between the victims of sexual abuse uh, in the diocese, um, and you know try to negotiate like a healing for for these individuals, these victims. Well, when he's coming back from, I think it was Thailand, he was. Oh boy, Thailand. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he was stopped at Ottawa Airport, and his laptop was confiscated. And what did they find on it? Child pornography. Yeah. So he's been defrocked. The, 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 the church has defrocked him. But this is, this, is, this is why I say it's systemic, right? Because you have the guy who's negotiating you know, with, with victims of predatory priests being potentially a predator himself. So. Well, I can only imagine how much the system itself because you know when we look at predators overwhelmingly they themselves have uh, have been victims yeah. of abuse so now what you have is you're essentially you're like this is a this is a basically a, a pedophile making machine this is what they've created yeah well that's kind of you know a pedophile factory <laughs> I wouldn't say I, Roman that Catholic Church. Single, I mean, pedophile. Binary. I wouldn't say that every single priest is a pedophile, and not even the ones that have been victimized themselves. I and I do know priests and former priests that are in that 
that that that population but there is um an inherent um sickness within the church and its inability to take responsibility for the manufacturing of these um of these personality types um and there's this one guy um what's his name um Marcelo Marcello, I think is his name. He founded this group at the Legionnaires of Christ. I don't know if you've heard of them. Oh, no, yeah, no, I have. It, it, my goodness. You know, he had, he had Maciel Massio, I think. Maciel Massio, thank you. I can't never pronounce it. See, I'm no good with Latin, with, uh, um, Latin names. Um, anyway, so he, yeah, he's a pretty much, he's a pretty much monster, right? But he Oh, yeah, got, he is pretty, he ranks in terms of, like, yeah. greatest monsters of yeah, all time. Yeah, yeah, because of his, the uh, systemic abuse that he per uh, perpetrated on his victims, who, that included his child that he had out of wedlock with another one of his victims. So, you know, and the church just kind of, um, the, the, you know, that his, his group was endorsed by the papacy. Like, it, like John Paul II loved him, you know? Like, oh, well, I mean, and he, and, definitely, and he knew about it because his, yeah. his right-hand man, oh, the sub-pope, I don't even know what to call him the, anymore. The, the, Ratzinger. Yeah, the, the, the uh, yeah, Benedict, yeah. formerly known as, the Pope, yeah. Formerly known as, um, yeah, yeah the, Ratzinger. The Pope formerly known as, I don't know, Benedict. Yeah. Is ba he, you know, he instituted that whole yeah. policy of don't talk to the yeah. cops or you'll be excommunicated. Yeah. Yeah, let's Excellent. excommunicate you for talking, but let's not excommunicate you for actually perpetrating the abuse. Like, what, what awaits the, the, the abusers is, you know, absolution, right? Just go to confession. Lay your sins down. You will be absolved. Well, this is why they have, like, you know, it's not a surprise that people who are in organized crimes or who are professional murderers are typically very religious because they can view all of those things in the, in the metric of sin, mm -hmm. you know, where it's just like all of these things can be absolved, mm -hmm. uh, you know, through my belief. So, you know, it's funny when, when, when people talk actually about atheists having no morality, hilariously enough. And you have a religion that basically always is able to customize their own morality because they say there is a way out. Yeah. It's like this magical thing. I mean, and, and, and literally the Vatican it was built on the them printing this physically so that you could just buy it. Yeah. The only, I mean, indulgences. Yeah. Yeah. What were they but basically get out of jail free cards they were handing out? You know, yeah. like they they'd truly tapped into the monopoly. Yeah. It was their, their little, uh, you know, Parker Brothers world. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I know. It's sad because a lot, like, there's so many Catholics, you know, that I know of that are good people that, you know, that have bought into and believe in transubstantiation and feel, you know, they would feel grieved and pained if they didn't, were unable to take part of the Eucharist. Like, it would be, it would be, an, it would be like a, you know, a death for them. And well, that, that pain is that pain is personal for you because if I'm not mistaken, it was your mother who was the 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 very religious person. What's your relationship with her now? Well, we don't really have one anymore. That that sounds like a bit like a tragedy to me. It is. It is a tragedy. Um, I you know um, attempted many times to tell my mother about the fact that I'm an atheist, and she knew that I didn't believe anymore. But somehow she had put it into her head that I was a Scientologist. I guess because I mentioned science a few times. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I hate that, that fucking cult and the way they just took over the word science. Bastards. I, I know. <laughs> so, 
So we had um, a discussion where I'm like, no, and I told her because I, I, I'm going to rewind a little bit. Um, I had an opportunity to have a, a dinner with Richard Dawkins last year, and in that dis- in that discussion that um, we had together, we taught he asked me about what my family thinks, and I and I told him that my husband is a non-believer, and that we're raising our child as a hum- you know as a humanist, that my in-laws know that we are fam- we are non-believers, but that you know everybody gets along and we don't have any issues. But when it comes to my mother, she knows that I don't believe but she doesn't know anything else and he was really shocked by that and then I realized when I when I saw the look on his face that oh you know what it is kind of shocking that my own mother doesn't know my my father's deceased so so I don't have to tell him but but I I didn't have to tell him but my mom because she was the person who was responsible for my religious upbringing aka indoctrination it was a really hard conversation and so even though i touched along the periphery of that of that conversation it i didn't want to cause a rift because this is the only mother that i have and so eventually it came to a head and we had this discussion and it just erupted in my face and now um we don't we do not talk she will send me a text message and say i'd like to see my grandson can you put him on skype and that is the level of discussion that we now have wow yeah do you foresee that it might improve is that or is it just only going to get worse i mean religiosity when people get older tends to increase no, I don't see it improving um, because my mother is a religious fanatic. She is. I, I, I accepted that about her even though I was an atheist and didn't want to hold it against her. I still don't. But the reality is is that the barrier to a relationship with her is that she cannot forgive me for not being a believer anymore. And she doesn't understand it. It is so outside of her context that it is alien. And that, that's kind of where I feel empathy for people that are caught within that context. And that's where I want everybody to kind of get along, you know, because the reality is, is you shouldn't have to forfeit a relationship with someone that has been, you know, your child or your best friend or, you know, um, your cousin or your grandma because of a, 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 a change in belief. The belief is the, is, you know, infinitesimally small in comparison with the value of the relationship. But for some reason, my mother has decided that her beliefs are more important to her than, than me. And she sees my lack of belief as a slap on her face because I was the child that was raised for God. Well, you know, uh, you were trying to be Samuel. Yes. And, uh, you know, he was a nut job. He killed people. Yeah. <laughs> He hacked them into pieces. Yeah, this monster. So let's not be Samuel. Yeah, exactly. So, so I mean, it makes me sad, and I've had to go through my own grieving process with it. But I've also had to just accept that this is where she is, and that is her context. And sometimes it's actually easier to care about someone and love them from a distance than it, it would be to be with them all the time. And I'm lucky in that we don't live in the same province, um, so that makes that easier. Um, I'm sad for my son because he loves his grandma and I don't know how to explain to him the situation. I mean, he's still too young. He's four, right? Um, and but I what about the relationship between the, you know, the grandmother and the son who's probably not going to believe in fairy tales, let's be honest. Well, yeah, you know. Uh, I, Is there another rift there, potentially? Or maybe an opportunity for her to soften? I don't know. Maybe she will soften. Um, it will take a lot on her part because um, she was very angry about my um, change of belief. Um, and so, you know, it, it, um, 
the, the good thing is that people can be angry about people's lack of beliefs, but we no longer have the Inquisition as it was. <laughs> I know it's it's cheerful. Well, not it's, not here, not you know, here. At the it's now it's now referred to as the doctrine of on on faith, but it's it you know it 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 doesn't exist in its former capacity. It's um, the covenant of the doctrine of the faith, actually. Yeah. Is the is the modern day Inquisition, Inquisition who yeah. was run by our friend, the former pope known as uh, Benedict. Rat, yeah, Ratzinger, um, <laughs> head of the Inquisition. Uh, yeah. uh, doctrine of faith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, 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 you know, um, it, it, this is a challenge that a lot of members of the Clergy Project face, and actually, when it comes to coming out of an atheist closet, this is the biggest barrier. I know lots of members of the project who are not going to come out to their family members because they are, they know that their relationship would be, you know, most likely lost. And the only reason that I came out was because I'm like, okay, I have a book coming out. I'm going to be speaking at the World Humanist Congress, and I ha there's a, a lot of stuff about me on the internet. All she has to do is Google me, and so um, I, I just wanted to be honest with her. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's um, I, I think you have to kind of for it, every individual has to kind of weigh the the cost, you know. Um, uh, benefit ratio and see how it's going to come out for them or how they think it might come out for them. I well, kinda, well, speaking I of cost, speaking yeah. of cost, because that's something I want to mention here, because, you know, let's take about, let's, t let's talk about some of the members of the clergy projects who, yeah. you know, whose mortgages yeah. suddenly become on the line when you yeah. were, you know, when you're trying to be honest about what you think uh, the nature of the universe is like. That's got to be yeah. brutal. It is. I mean, you don't have to look any further than Jerry DeWitt. <clears throat> Pardon me. I mean, Jerry really nearly lost everything because he was outed on Facebook as an atheist. He, he you know, maybe a bit naively posted a picture of himself with Richard Dawkins on his Facebook page and someone recognized Richard Dawkins. And he didn't probably didn't think anybody he knew would recognize him. And um, his problem was that he was lost in a bit of stardom. It's normal. I read his books too. And even yeah. though I'm a cool cat, I think I'd probably still lose my shit a little. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so you know, Jerry's situation. You know, um, Jerry and I were talking all throughout that time when you know he, he was in jeopardy of losing his house. He was getting you know threatened. No one was talking to him. People were. You know, he was alienated in his community, and it was a really, really rough time. But Jerry has remained who Jerry is, and he has stuck it out. And he has proved that just because your opinion about God and the universe has changed, it doesn't erode who you are as a person. You don't all of a sudden become a mass murderer. In fact, you're, you know, you're still the same happy, gregarious a person that you always were. And that, Actually, there is a major difference, and I would say that? that probably Jerry would agree that the difference is that you don't have to be disingenuous anymore and that makes you feel like a better person and that yeah. will just kind of come out reflecting because when you were when you're lying to people even if you think it's for their own good yeah. uh, you you know you feel like you're not you're not really being that respectful to them you're you're assuming they can't handle it sometimes it's true but yeah. I I detest that sort of attitude about people I'm like let them face the truth I think the truth is is better when because you you faced it you know you yeah. had that choice when somebody takes away that choice to face truth you know, yeah that's, that's, yeah that's, I like I think people sh you know should make kind of their own decision I think 
as a society, it's better that we take any religious elements, they, we extract them from society because the reality is, is that they're not universal, okay? Um, we need to look at values that are universal, like human rights, um, and, and hold them out as um, the things that we're going to uh, promote within, you know, our cultures. Um, but other ideals or ideologies, you know, should be in the private sphere. Um, so if you want to believe X, Y, or Z, you know, then you do that privately and not within, you know, a, a town hall meeting or, or um, if you're running for mayor, right? <laughs> so, um, I, like, I mean, and that might be a Canadian response and maybe I'm, I'm, I'm a little... Um, also very Torontonian is the most diverse city in the world yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, like, I, I mean, I, do I wish... You know, that T-shirt that Richard, Richard Dawkins wears and that they, they sell religion together, we can find a cure. Do I wish that would be true? Yeah, I do. Because I think that religion tends to poison things because people get so invested in it that they don't see clearly and they don't think. And I think thinking is a really good but it's thing. Not, it's not even just that they don't think. It's a good example. I'm going to be doing a show later on about this, mm. uh, about those Nigerian schoolgirls okay. that were kidnapped, is that not only can you, does, you're not thinking, or is that your thinking has been manipulated yeah. and changed yeah. to make you do inhuman things. Yeah, yeah. That is really, that's what poisons it. What poisons it is yeah. when a person tells me that there is an objective morality and that it's controlled by a capricious deity. Yes, I agree. I agree. That that type of stuff needs to go the way of the dodo. It needs to be, it needs to be packed away. It, it's it's past its expiry date. Um, but the thing is, is that the way I see it is that not everybody is going to get, arrive at that conclusion at the same time, right? It's going to happen in a staggered fashion. And the way that you know the rise of, of literacy happened over uh, you know decades, right? It's it's something that's going to slowly emerge. Maybe the trend is picking up thanks to the internet. Right? <laughs> but, I don't know. That was another show. Nobody knows that we oh, were. Oh shoot! Know, we, yeah, that we were right. just talking up the internet the whole time and saying how it was basically invented uh, by atheists and why, you know, despite uh, I'll repeat it because it's worth mentioning. Despite there's a bunch of articles out there that have, I think, correctly pointed out that the internet is one of the main reasons why atheism is on the rise, or at least non-belief is kind of spreading. And I think we know this from experience, being people who are in it, and maybe that does color our attitudes, but we also know that without the internet, where would we be, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, 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 it's, um, it's improved access to information. Granted, not all the information that's on the internet is accurate. <laughs> Probably not even, you know, the largest percentage of information is accurate, but at least that there, there are are pockets of information that's reliable. There are places where people can go, where they can dialogue, where they can, you know, um, hear about what's going on. Hey, I found out about the second Rob Ford video when I checked my Twitter feed. <laughs> so, and that happened much faster than it did if I turned on the TV or, you know, if I waited the next day for the newspaper. Are so, you constantly looking for this, though? I mean, you may be, you may be trolling for this information. I, I'm not. I'm not. No? When I saw it, I was like, no, not again. Yes, no, no it's a good, it's actually a good thing. Now yeah. he has to step aside rather than run again and probably win. Hopefully he will step aside. Right now all he's done is said, I'm taking a leave. 
um, and he's, he's run off to his nice, cushy, expensive um, uh, rehab program. Well, can, um, I, can I polish that turd, though, for you? Because, again, <laughs> I'm an expert in polishing turds. <laughs> Let me polish this turd that you, will, as a Canadian, will appreciate. Until the Rob Ford thing, yeah. our, like the media's ability or like even any citizen's ability to get information was a lot more limited than people realize because this is not America, you know. They're, yeah. they're, we don't have Freedom of Information Acts and things like that. Mm -hmm. And that changed yeah, because, because of Rob of Ford. Rob Ford has changed the way that media operates in Canada in a positive direction. So you can thank him and, you know, send him some more crack or something. Yes, yeah, yeah. Now, I won't be doing that, but somebody else can. Polish that turd. <laughs> I think it should be just a whole segment on my show. I'm good at these things, right? Mm -hmm. Polish that turd. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep, that's my specialty. That's my specialty. So, this new website. I want to talk about yeah. this before we go. Yeah. Um, it seems as though the you know the clergy project itself is moving from that whole where you know we needed to be isolated because of the nature of the project to now having a bit more of a face. Is it because they 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 believe that there are now there's now so much interest from other people who wouldn't even dare go there that you just you know even just putting it out there as just general blogging information is just going to make this thing explode? Is that the hope? Well, yeah. Uh, let, me, let me just uh, start with, okay, the founding of the clergy project, everybody who was in the project from the beginning and, and, and now had, was pre-screened, right? And you had to meet criteria, right? So you had to have attended seminary, you had to, or you had to have worked as a clergy person within a particular denomination and have some sort of certificate of saying that you were um, as such. Um, and then you also had to have transitioned from a person of belief to non-belief, and you have to identify as, you know, being a, a non-believer, right? So you, by meeting these criteria, you're, you know, that's how everybody was screened into the project. And one of the things, when I, I uh, worked with Linda Lascola and we created the screening process when volunteer, for volunteers that were going to take over doing the screening when we had launched the public webpage in October 2011. Um, and one of the things, the first things that I noticed and that the other screeners noticed was that we got a lot of deists, a lot of deists who were like, you know, I just don't believe in zombie Jesus anymore and it's Easter and I don't believe I have to preach on this. And so they make these applications and we talk to them and they discover that they still believe in an afterlife of sorts or that, um, you know, they still have some, uh, you know, godlike leanings. Um, and so we couldn't approve them for membership. And um, then we'd also get some people that, you know, never, were never believers, but they were interested in the project and say they worked in humanist chaplaincy, so we couldn't approve them either. So, so there was always this acknowledgement that there's a big group of people that would probably like to talk with clergy project members, but we can't put them on the forum because we have to worry, we're worried about the privacy and anonymity of those people who need to protect their identities. But so there was always this gap. And then it was Linda Lascola and I who were talking um, and, you know, and Linda and I had this, well, Linda started it and had this idea that, you know, if we had another place, then these people could be part of this dialogue and, and we could encourage it. We could encourage members of the clergy project that could say who they really are or they could use a pseudonym and they could dialogue with these people that are outside of the forum and that this would be a good thing for the clergy project you know we may potentially grow members but also for this segment that are just kind of out there you know alone and um, it, it could be a benefit for them so that so that's how this all happened and then Linda and I worked on uh, 
on coming up with the the idea of the blog and you know we I created the logo we came up with the name uh Papios, um I you know we were in negotiations with them and they welcomed us last week and here we are rational doubt uh We've had three. Ready to roll. Ready to roll. Ready to roll. And we've had three posts. The first one was Linda's encouraging people to join. We were really lucky because um, uh, Kimberly Winston with Religious News Service uh, was interested in us. And uh, she spoke to Linda first. And they were talking about the book that Linda Lascola and Dan Dennett um, did called uh, Caught in the Pulpit. Um, And it's the second part of the study that they that they started with the preachers who are not believers that they did with Tufts University, and I'm in I'm in the book. The um, I'm one of the seminarians. I'm the female seminarian in the book. And um, Kimberly, you know, didn't know who that I was, and she asked if she could speak to the female seminarian, and lo and behold, <laughs> it was me. And small world, still small world. small world, small world. And so she wrote this great article about the this blog and the goals of it and the book and how what a you know encouraging thing this is because you know a lot of people are invested in what the potential is for the clergy project and clergy project members you know people like uh, uh, Todd Stiefel who donated a hundred thousand dollars to help us um, create a uh, an outreach an out um, placement program for clergy project members Todd and I worked you know collaborated uh, on how that program would get would be set up and uh, and now we have members that have access to um, uh, strategies to help them to find jobs outside of ministry for those members right. that are well, interested that, in that. That's, that is kind of my whole thing of saying the big failure for a long time in the atheism community it was like look we're just kind of saying you're on your own now oh yeah. you leave religion we're not like any other groups we don't need this hello they were they exist as part of their reliance on one group and now you're saying well bite the freaking dust and it, here's the thing and i think that this is why you know you you're invested in it it's no coincidence you're a canadian because you know how americans are about this kind of stuff they're very much like a you're on your fucking own and who needs uh, you know pull yourself up by your bootstraps attitude and it's just not feasible when you're facing the kind of prejudice uh, and hatred that can often come especially for people who are you know their entire lives are vested in this yeah. you want a person to say oh give up your livelihood give yeah. up probably three quarters if not more of your family just because you know you, you you need to have intellectual integrity yeah well this is the thing like not all members of the clergy project who are active want to leave right you right. know some members have have decided to do their own thing and have set up their own secular communities. There's at least three or four that are doing that. Like Jerry has um, a group that he's set up. Um, and then I think the, one of the bigger successes would be Mike Ouse, who came out on MSNBC um, on, uh, I think it was, was it Up with Chris Hayes? Um, and, and said, hey, I am uh, an atheist pastor and um, um, my congregation doesn't know. And even though he had this really public coming out and kind of shocked some people, he was able to take his really liberal-leaning congregation and migrate a bunch of people into the Houston Oasis. And now they're, like, growing. They've got 100 people showing up every single week for services, right? So... <laughs> and, and But here's what you have to say to the atheists out there. Do not be shocked. A lot of this activity, because here's the thing, we make an uncomfortable association with gatherings and religions. But this is only because religions have been doing it so long and they claim to have a monopoly on this. But if people set up all kinds of gatherings for all kinds of reasons, it's just something that we actually need to do. This is a a need. This is not just some... Yeah, Yeah. this is not just some... 
throwaway thing. You, yeah. if you're not surrounded by people, other people, you start to wither and die and probably age prematurely. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is this is the reality. And even though this is something new or something different or you know um, um, something alien within the secular atheist world, um, I think it's a good thing, you know. And um, I think that. In some ways, and some people might disagree with me, that doing the rounds to, at atheist conventions is a way of getting that social need met. Um, and some people might need that more often, right? Some people want to go every single weekend, right? So I kind of, from the beginning when I started going to conferences, was like, these are really cool. I'm getting this need met that I lost. Like, I lost my community when I gave up my faith. I lost those good feelings that I had when I would sit with a bunch of people in mass and then afterwards or go to choir practice or you know do a fundraiser for the homeless shelter like all those things went out of my life when i left religion and i valued those and there was no nothing within the atheist world that helped to reproduce that and i hope that changes and maybe not everybody wants that to change but i i do hope that it does change and i hope that clergy project members play a part in that transformation well we don't want a group that's you know homogenous we want we want different attitudes some people yeah. be like i don't want to do nothing we're like cool just <laughs> don't shit on a good time yeah. that's all we ask you know yeah. what i mean like I, I would love if we had a much more of a positive attitude towards one another's attempts to do whatever let's just not shit on things yeah. you don't like this atheist church thing that does this thing whatever yeah. i mean to some degree you know like i've, I've had some criticism from people because i tried to set up my own cult Mm -hmm. called the 300 and you know because we have a whole bunch of gags my my approach was saying uh you might as well just bring it to light and poke fun at it you know like and, and break all the rules of saying for instance every member who's in we're encouraging people to leave all the time because really is only a limited amount of people because <laughs> you don't want your you don't also don't want your club to be too big i think when something you sometimes get it gets too big you know it gets out of control and yeah. stuff all well, these other rules that kind of generally you, you know you can rewrite them and just I'm, say, well, there's no dogma. That's the thing. Yeah, there's no dogma. Like if you, I, um, let me just look here because I, I, I had my notes open and I, I did a, um, I had a discussion with Mike Ouse, um a while ago. And we talked about, you know, the work that he's done in building the Houston Oasis. And he said, you know, they have these, these core values. And he says, these are, these are it. I'm reading it from their website. It says, people are more important than beliefs. Only human hands can solve human problems. Reality is known through reason, not revelation. Meaning comes from making a difference, labels are unimportant, and everyone should be accepted wherever they are as long as they are accepting in return. So, I mean, those are, you know, pretty basic. But the reality is, it's like there, we have this pattern, right, where he, uh, with, you can look at these and say, oh, well, they're like a reduced version of the Ten Commandments. Well, yeah, okay, well, there's a reason why there's this so-called golden rule. Like, there are things that we do repeatedly right it, within our cultures that um speak to what it is to be human and coming up with core values and putting them on a piece of paper or a stone tablet you know um are are something that we tend to do and well it's it, it's it's we can't underestimate the fact that look if we were ants and we were genetically programmed to be a particular way you're a soldier ant you're a queen ant because you had like you know it's written in your genes there's no there's no existential crisis in no. antland okay no. No. but being a human you have to accept the fact that your your future is not determined by your genes you know the, the you're 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 a creature that lives in a living breathing culture that offers you at least we think the opportunity to kind of choose for yourself and that therein lies the rub, I think. This is why I think religion is that crutch, because when it comes to having to choose, 
You know, the most terrifying thing is having to choose yourself because then you only have yourself to blame if you're wrong. Yeah, that's yeah. a terrible feeling. Yeah. But at the same, you know, like the codes that we create our own lives from the. The, these codes become like our own key to our own happiness. So we should probably take some time to think about these particular codes. I would say the only caveats I would add to that code is one, don't take yourself too seriously. And two, <laughs> this code could change at any time. Yeah, and actually when Mike and I talked, he said, you know, we modify them. They, they're kind of like a living document. And that's, kind, that's really how it needs to be. Like if you look at something like the Amsterdam Declaration, you know, um, it, it, in some ways it's a living document. It has to be, it has to exist within the context that, you know, it, it has to evoke something. You know, we have to feel something from from you know these uh, words mashed up on a uh, on a page. Otherwise, there there is no value, and and maybe then it will follow the way of theology and just become utterly meaningless. But you know, um, hey, wait, did I just slide down some nihilistic slippery slope? Oh darn! Uh oh, uh oh, <laughs> don't go there. I, I would I would say that you know the reason why it needs to be malleable is because every generation, you know, one yeah. day you're going to be grandma whose values don't matter anymore because mm -hmm. maybe at that point all of a sudden everybody's genetically manipulating themselves so they can breathe underwater, fly in the air, whatever, and you're like, I don't like it. Bipedalism all the way. I'm going to be, be honest you. with you. I think I'll be a hipper granny than that. <laughs> uh, wow. All right. You took a stand really early, everybody, on transmorphism and all this other kind of business. Catherine's already picked her, her thing. I don't know how to feel about it. So I'm going to just sit on the fence. I'm going to fence <laughs> As I always deride, I'm like, I'm not ready. I'm just not ready for non-bipedalism. Yeah. Well, that out there. Well, okay. Yeah. Anyway. I'm going to be the grandpa and be like, get off my lawn, you mutants. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have to have that discussion at that time. Uh, I'm, but I'm, I'm, I'm ready to be softened. And, and, you know, I think that our last challenge mm -hmm. ourselves is, you know, like you, you have a, fa a family member, a loved one that is still wrapped up in that mm -hmm. delusion. And then, you know, that's a kind of daily reminder that we still don't understand even enough about belief to fully tackle it yet. Because then we could, we could rebuild those relationships. Yeah, I I would like to do that. I would love to be. I would love to see who's doing the research on belief and non-belief and how you know it impacts relationships and how it you know how the 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 emergence of the nons or the none of non-affiliated uh, people you know how that's going to impact our culture and how we socialize and you know how we support and encourage one another and I like again I'm like saying there's a place for clergy project members to come in and to help with that process or to contribute to the dialogue um, there is so much to be done there know? is so much to be done and that's the thing like we, if for humans we're always doing something we're always trying to make our mark or trying to have an impact or trying to matter right and and, and that's what's really awesome about us and ultimately frustrating right at the same time it's a it, it it's a it's wonderful i think it's fantastic and I, well, we're both wonderful and terrible at the same time yeah, so yeah it's just our so, future. exactly exactly we're terribly wonderful or wonderfully terrible mm -hmm. <laughs> it's it's really up to us to decide which one we're going to take so how early do i have you in this uh in you know like this whole blogging thing you, were, you said there were three posts am i that early you were that early we just launched All last right. week so, I so love you, being an early on this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I, it, it's it's coming together, and um, I'm very encouraged with with how it's going. Um, we've got lots of positive feedback. Um, I, I'm really looking forward to getting more 
you know, input from, from maybe seminary students um, or, or clergy that are deists. I really want to hear more about their perspective and I want to encourage them. Not necessarily to say, hey, come on, let's go. Although at that article with Kimberly, I kind of described it as, you know, we're in the deep end of the pool and then they're maybe there in the shallows because that's how I viewed myself at that time. That's how I see my processes that I went from being in the shallows to now realizing that I'm, I'm on my own, but it's okay. Right? I don't need a floater. I don't need the life jacket. I can swim on my own. So. I don't think anybody needs a floater. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that's how I like. That's how I run this show. That's how I run oh, the show. Gosh. Well, I'm looking forward to when you know you're a little bit further along the road. Mm -hmm. You got the book out, so we're gonna have you mm -hmm. back for there because you've already done three shows by now. Just only I one of them is. Exactly. I have done three shows by now, so hopefully I'll have some new material the next time. <laughs> oh, I'm, you sound like you have a ton of material. You could be a co-host for the love of Pete. No, I mean, uh, and and anybody who's curious about it, so they can go. What is the URL that they should? I mean, they'll be in the notes, but just yeah. I'd like to hear. Um, the URL is um, one second here. I have to actually find this. The URL is easy to remember. It's a good thing that many of our members are good with searches. Yes, it's uh, it's. Rational uh, doubt um, at, at, on Patheos. So if you put in, um, uh, da, 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 da. it's a really long URL. Let, let me just right. Say, okay, right. let's just not give them the, the yeah. Let's just say go to Patheos and then do and look for sorry. rational. Oh, sorry, reasonable rational doubt. I uh, almost you, did reasonable doubt. Yeah. You gotta yeah. Can you tell I redid That's the logo? That's how new you are. That's how I, new I, you are. I redid the logo like three times. <laughs> so it's rational doubt and it's. Uh, it's www.patheos.com slash blog slash clergy project slash. All right. Well, and if you have any problems with that, you can always email me, the good atheist, if you're just like, that was the most confusing thing ever. I'll just pass it along. Let's yeah. just, it's still that early. We're all that tiny and small. Yeah. But one day we'll all laugh. Uh, one day I'll completely laugh. Yeah, about this. So, anyway, check us out and please. Um, comment because that is why we are there for comments and for Do they, is there also a Facebook pa fan page or any of those other things? We don't have a Facebook page um, but we are on Twitter and the Twitter handle is at rational um, D blog. Rational D blog and these will also be put lovingly in the notes for all of those of you that uh, like to click and not yes. really type anything. That's going to be the good thing. So. Those are you now. You know what to do after this interview. You know that you need to support uh, the clergy project in any way. I think it's a, I think it's a huge. I mean, I, I don't think we really fully understand its impact because, of course, we live always in the now. Mm -hmm. But if you were to ask somebody in 20 years what was the importance of this kind of project, it will be massive, because you know you, you've got to. We, we've got to stop <laughs> anyone preaching this. Not we got to do everything we can. To just make them stop. If they want to stop, we should really help them. Yeah, I, I, I think that the, I, I'm really hopeful for the um, impact. I, I'm very encouraged. I think that, you know, everybody who's made the decision um, that's in the project to um, leave their faith behind um, has not done it because they, it, it wasn't a split decision. It didn't happen, you know, um, in a nanosecond. It, it happened. It was a long, slow process over many years. And it was thoughtful and deliberate and painful. <laughs> um, and uh, I think that, um, you know, because of that process, many of our members have a lot to give 
to the secular community and a lot to contribute, you know, to the world at large. And, and I'm just like everybody else waiting to see that happen. Well, I'm looking forward to having such a dedicated Canadian um, on, on the team because, uh, you know, these are diligent and polite people and she <laughs> represents them well. Unlike me, I'm a terrible Canadian. I'm, a <laughs> <laughs> I'm all I'm all fire and spit and brimstone or whatever, but that's just uh, that's my nature. That's what I'm good at. Yeah. I'd like to thank my guest Catherine Dunphy for being on the show, and uh, I want to encourage everybody to to help out with this project and do whatever you. The smallest things often help, don't they? They do. They definitely do. So. All right. Well, thanks for joining me, Catherine. Thank you. All right, everybody. Have a good atheist day. <laughs>